Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I am said Forest of the East. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for subscribing and listening. This week we have a conversation with Dr. Diana Hill and she has a new book about acceptance commitment therapy, which is uh, includes things like mindfulness and acceptance and values-based living and self-compassion. We get into sort of how this can be used as a way to have psychological flexibility, particularly would seem useful these times, all times, but really when there's a lot of change going on, I thought it could be uh, cool to kind of dig into what is this paradigm of, of working with yourself and the mind and the body, and I think you are going to enjoy it too. And thank you, so I'm recording this actually a little early because I'm uh, finishing up my trip to New York City right now. So through the magic of digital time travel, hopefully uh, as this is airing, I'm flying back and I'm there. We had a very successful week. I am conjuring in my mind because uh, we were doing some uh, photo shoots and video shoots through 1RPM and my buddy Mark, Mark Tom Photography, shout out. Um, And I haven't been there in a while since I think I played with maybe Trevor Hall at Irving Plaza and then COVID hit and everything. And I used to live there. So I'm, I'm looking forward to going back, seeing some friends and walking the old haunts. But, uh, yeah, I can tell you more about that next week on, on what's up, but thank you to everyone who is part of our council on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash East forest. That is a way to support this podcast because, uh, right now it is, there are, it's free to listen to the podcast. So if you want to, if you appreciate this and you have some gratitude for it or just the East Forest Project in general, that is one way to dive deeper. We have monthly Zoom councils and uh, exclusives and advanced listens to music and all sorts of things like that. So check it out, eastforest.org. You can scroll down on the homepage. It is there as well. And thank you for everyone who shares the podcast, says hi, team at eastforest.org. And social media and stuff. It's always wonderful to see your messages of support. And I look forward to seeing you out there in the real world. As that starts to unfold, more on that in the future. Uh, It's getting pretty hot here in Boise, Idaho and southern Utah. Probably everywhere. It seems like it's pretty scary how dry things are. Particularly in Utah, there's some exceptional drought happening. And that's always hard, knowing how where this planet's going to go especially in regards to water, but um, we're doing what we can do. And uh, this conversation should be somewhat relevant because it's about being flexible psychologically. <laughs> Last thing I just want to say is uh, tomorrow, as if all goes as planned, on June, let's see, it's going to be a Wednesday, June 23rd, the uh, fifth song from the Possible album will be releasing. It's called Tabula Rasa. And it features Lorraine Weiss. I'm going to give you a little sneak peek at the end of this podcast of that song, but it's a it's a fun one. It's it's got a chorus. Lorraine's spoken word. I can tell you a little bit about Lorraine soon at the end of this. But I think you'll I think you'll dig it. I hope you've been enjoying the Bones track with Bio Akumalafe. Um, We're getting we're building up to the July 23rd when all the other songs, the whole record comes out. And the vinyl, too, if you want to uh, pre-order the vinyl, because it's going to ship in July, 
I would do that now. It's this beautiful iridescent blue. Anyway, you can do that in a store, eastforest.org. All right, let's get into this insightful, wonderful conversation with Dr. Diana Hill. Dr. Diana Hill, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's wonderful to be here. Where are you hailing from right now? I'm in Santa Barbara, California, and in the foothills up here, you'll see sort of an oak grove behind me uh, in my home office that's right outside of my home. Yeah. One of my oldest friends and someone who's been an elder in my life is grew up, born and raised, and he lives in the hills of Santa Barbara, and he's like this mystic that just never leaves his little cabin. He's the voice of a song of mine called Ten Laws, and so he's like... The, which is the first song I wrote. So I have this soft spot for the Santa Barbara Hills. Yeah, the Santa Barbara Hills. Well, that's what I am, Diana Hill. And I was born and there raised here too. One of the no one way. of the few that was that have, um, was born and raised in Santa Barbara. We have a lot of transplants here because it's a beautiful place to live. Yeah. Do you know the the Johnson family, Court Johnson? They had a lot of kids, and they were famous. I mean, he's much. He's in his seventies now, but when they were kids. Apparently, their family got a school bus, and they traveled around the entire world on this school bus, and they met, like, Khrushchev, and it got a lot of press. I, I don't know, but that's, that's Santa Barbara history. Yeah, there's um, a lot of luminaries that live here. Uh, you know, yeah. people people come here for lots of different reasons, but, um, yeah, some my neighbor was Kenny Loggins for a while, so you'd appreciate that. He used to do concerts. Nice. He'd do these concerts in his backyard, and my backyard sort of was catty corner to his and we'd go pull up our, our chairs and listen into him singing Footloose. So that was pretty fun. That's awesome. Yeah. That's that's awesome. Well, um, I was introduced to some of the work that you're into and psychological flexibility and ACT. And I just wanted to start because it, it perked up my interest, um, this idea of being flexible and like what that means and all the different ways I could think about that, especially how it's relevant to times such as the one we're in, where I would argue it's always changing times. It's always, that's sort of what life is about, but we're in this particularly acute uh, stage that I, I've sometimes called the great transition that is really more civilizational. And it's on this big, broad level of major systems change and sort of this you know, composting of an old way of life to a new way of life. But oftentimes this is mirrored on the personal level. And in that way, there's these unique opportunities for each of us, these little doorways that seem to be opening up that only sometimes we can see. But in that, I'm guessing you could tell us a little bit about what this means to you, psychological flexibility, and we can just dive in from there. Sure. It's not a term that I created. It's actually been researched for uh, many decades now. The co-founders of ACT or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy or training, depending on whether you're using it with an Olympic athlete or a, in the therapy room. Mm. Uh, ACT was developed by Stephen Hayes, uh, Kirk Strassel, and Kelly Wilson, and it's evolved over time. But really the goal of ACT is to develop psychological flexibility, which is your ability to stay present, stay open, stay aligned and know what matters most to you and take committed action towards those values. And what the research is starting to show around psychological flexibility, in particular during like the pandemic, is that folks that were psychologically flexible were better parents. There was less spillover effects under their families. There was less suicidal ideation. They did better with social isolation, less anxiety and depression. But 
really what it's about is human flourishing. And I would say the field of psychology is moving away from models that are sort of rigid and diagnostic and symptom-based and more into what are the processes of uh, involved in human flourishing and thriving. And psychological flexibility breaks down to these six core processes that we could talk about. But I've gotten, you know, I've been practicing ACT for over a decade now, and I use it in my clinical practice, but I use it in my own life in thinking about myself as a partner, as a mom, as a homesteader here in Santa Barbara, part of a, an ecosystem, right? The ecosystem of my body, but also just the ecosystem that I live in. So, yeah. Well, it seems, I guess, on the face of it, being psychologically flexible is obvious that that would be advantageous. But I mean, how, what is you? You said the ACT ACT acronym quickly there. Maybe we should just define how that relates and what that is. Sure. So ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a therapy mm-hmm. that's based in uh, Western science of behavioral science, but then it brings in principles of acceptance, principles of the transcendent self, and. It's really sort of this this balance, right, of, of, of both, that we need to practice acceptance, allowing, and opening, but then also not being passive in our lives, but rather taking action towards what we care about. And ACT, when they've sort of operationalized it through research to look at what are the core components, what are the processes involved in being psychologically flexible, there's six of them. And it's sort of like a, like a Rubik's Cube is sometimes how I describe it, that there's sides of a Rubik's cube that interact with each other and you can work on one side at a time. So the, the six sides are being present, uh, knowing what matters to you, being clear on what your personal chosen values are. That's the second one. The third one is perspective taking. So your ability to step out of ego self, but also be able to get behind the eyes of another and take perspective on yourself, more transcendent self. Uh, the, fourth, the fourth one has to do with our thoughts. ACT takes a different approach to thoughts than traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, where in ACT, you're doing a lot of uh, stepping out and observing your thoughts, distancing from your thoughts, which is called cognitive mm. diffusion. And then the fifth one is acceptance. So knowing that in you know, sort of the, no- the noble truths, right, that it's actually our resistance to pain that causes a lot of our suffering. In ACT, there's a lot of practices around acceptance, opening up, allowing, and getting curious. And that's usually the word I like to use is getting curious. And then the sixth one has to do with committed action. And committed action is persistence towards your goals. It's sort of that, you know, I'm a yoga teacher, so it's like over and over again, finding moving yourself into the pose. You, you never really get there. It's it's an ongoing committed action over time. So those are the six mm. core processes that that are actually taught. They're skills that are taught as part of this program called ACT. So it's sort of a methodology. It's a kind of, there's elements of mindfulness. And then I'm hearing that there's some levels of practice or actionable things you can do. Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah, and like, what are some of those things that maybe that the the doing part that makes it sort of translate from the noticing into like some form of action? Sure. So one thing that I like to teach is uh, has to do with habit formation. You know, I'm sort of a behaviorist at heart. So, um, you know, things like getting getting clear on what your values are, what's important to you in your life, and then designing your life, creating habits in your life that are intrinsically rewarding because they're linked to your values. So if you look at a habit, a behavior cycle, it starts with a cue, something that cues you to do something. So for for me in the morning, I wake up and 
my first my first cue is like coffee, right? And so yeah. um, for me, I built into my my habit cycle around my coffee is also when I go, that's when I take all my like resveratrol and like my, you know, anti-aging supplementation is right around my coffee, right? But then I take my coffee and I take my coffee down to go sit. And I actually use the coffee as the reinforcer for my spiritual practice, right? My meditation or my journaling practice in the morning. So you can start to think about using some of the science of behaviorism around what's important to you and reinforcing what's important to you. So that's just one part of committed action. But, you know, I think that with, with ACT, the, the reason why it's of interest to me or why I use it is because it, there's a resonance of lots of different traditions within it. And mm-hmm. so, so you hear the behavioral science, but then over here, you're working on uh, transcendent self, right? Like noticing when we're caught up in self story and how to, in that, in the moment, be able to step back into a bigger perspective, more interconnected um, version of you. So, a lot of these processes work together and are, uh, it's much, it's sort of an integrative approach to psychology. How, how is it different though than just sort of like basic mindfulness? Like, what, what sets it apart from just paying attention and having that witness? consciousness. Right. So mindfulness is a core component of ACT. It's one of those six six sides of the Rubik's Cube, right? So mindfulness is the being present. I would say how ACT is different is that one, you don't need to have a formal meditation practice in order to be engaging in the processes of ACT. And in ACT, it's it's being mindful where it matters to you. Because you know, it's talking about sort of this canyon, right? So I live in this canyon and there's these beautiful red tail hawks that come over through the foothills here. And for a long time, my husband has been saying, honey, come out and look at the red tail hawk. Honey, come out. And I, and usually I'll sit there and be like, I'm finishing a note or I'm, you know, finishing up making dinner or I'm doing something with the kids. And I'll be like, hold on a second. And either by the time I get out there, the hawk is gone or by the time I, or I don't go out at all because, you know, it's just a hawk. But during the, you know, sort of early parts of COVID, I want, I went up to my house and my husband was working and we were both working from home. And he looked at me and he said, honey, I can't see like a whole portion of your face. And I was like, okay, so we need to get you to a doctor. And many doctor's appointments later, we learned that he has this progressive vision loss that he's never going to get back and that's going to continue. Right. So when my, when my husband says, honey, look at the red tail hawk, I'm mindful where it matters. Right. I I go, I drop everything. So in act it's, it's, it's about getting clear on what really does matter to you. And I think, you know, especially at big times, like transition, like of, of big, huge traumas or big, huge changes in our life, there's a clarity that emerges and that clarity is often through pain, that pain is one of the biggest arrows that points to our values. So values are another side of that Rubik's Cube. So with ACT, we have the mindfulness side of the Rubik's Cube, but then we also notice that when you're mindful, it also, when you start working on that side, it also connects to the other side, which is your values. And when you start working on your values and all of a sudden it taps into your pain. And then when you start working on pain, you start recognizing, oh, I need to work on the acceptance part of all this stuff. And you start working on the acceptance part of it. And then you're like, well, maybe I need to make some changes in my life. So then you start working on the committed action. And you can see how these different sides of the Rubik's Cube intersect and interact to mm-hmm. create 
a way of being in the world, which is psychologically flexible. Well, I love that phrase of pain pointing to your values. Um, a lot of what I like to do with music and ceremony and ritual is about sort of clearing away the noise or that which is blocking uh, that natural intuitive sense about what those values are. Like, what are the things I really want to, where I want to point all this? Um, and so I totally agree that in a lot of ways, stress and pain is a way of getting, you know, it'll illuminate that for you typically. But let's talk about like the ways maybe you can advance that so you don't have to get to the pain like because there are lots of different ways to tap into that intuitive wisdom your compass inside to say like well i want to learn about well let's just take you were talking about in your you have this new book and it has a little bit to do in its relevance to times like the pandemic where it's like okay there's a lot going on let's say there's all these stressors and you're sort of like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm really feeling really anxious. There's all this stuff going on. And you want to find a more clear path through it. What are some of the steps that fit into this system of thinking that we're like, we could actively choose to do it before we're starting to have issues like pain or, or we're waiting for some major breakdown in our life? Yeah. So I, I love that you're a musician and I, um, I often use the metaphor of tuning a guitar to uh, be a metaphor for values. And in, in ACT, we use a lot of metaphors because it's a way to use language to get around language. Humans are caught so much up in their head and with language and stories that it's ridiculousness and we need to get into our, out of our heads and into our bodies, right? So tune a, a guitarist, and my, my son is a guitarist, uh, so I'm learning a little bit from him. But a guitarist, when they tune a guitar, the first thing they do is they play it, right? You play all the strings and you listen. And then, and then you listen and it's, it's the knowing, right? It's like, how do you know? Well, I know, <laughs> I know, right? You can use the little guitar tuners or you can listen if you're a musician. And so I think of values is that we don't have to wait for our guitars to be so out of tune and like, you know, blaring our ears to, to, to do it. But actually it's a rather, rather a tuning in throughout our day, through the, through the choice points over and over throughout our day, there's these moments where we have a choice to listen in and tune up and go yeah. string by string, right? So when a guitarist will will then go string by string, and I think of those strings as the domains of our life, right? So what are your values? How do you want to be in relationship to parenting? Or how do you want to be in relationship to health? Or how do you want to be in relationship to social justice? Or how do you want to be in these different strings? And then you make little adjustments. And what's interesting is that just like when a, when, a, when a musician goes up to a stage, we give them lots of time to tune up and we're patient. We're like, yeah, take your time. We want it to sound good. So we'll give you whatever time you need, right? But we don't sort do of, that for- Sort of, sort Audiences, yeah. Audience. I'm kidding. But if you were a true connoisseur, you should, right? You know. Like sure, it's sure, better. yeah. It's like, let them do what they need to do. Let them yeah. do what they need to do. And I would say the same is true for us. And the, the same, that we need to give ourselves that time. We need to take the time to be intentional, intentional about tuning in and tuning up to our values and values being really personal and chosen by you and the ways in which you want to be in the world. So what type of sister or brother do you want to be? What type of uh, human do you want to be with this friend? That's why, yes, we can wait for pain to show up or we can also take action throughout our day, these little mini micro adjustments, little micro adjustments mm -hmm. to tune into our values. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, so this element of choice is there. Like you have to essentially, you know, the instigating factor in this is that it's you who's deciding. Um, I think there is this also this element when all these external forces are going on and things are breaking down. There's kind of like a feeling like it's not up to you, like you're a victim. And at the you know, there is always this this role that you play to sort of decide how you want to point that ship. And you need you need it on the most basic level. It sounds like to start this journey to decide what those values are. You could change them at any time, just like we were talking about my friend Court, who lives in Santa Barbara and has ten laws that he has. That's sort of like his hunter gatherer code of ten. Like if I have those things covered, the rest of the stuff in my life is extra. It's the extra credit. These are the things that are important to me. Mm-hmm. And he decided those, and he says they're not immutable. You know, I could change these at any time. And you can add to them or take them away. Um, so for some people, maybe it's just like shifting that basic paradigm about like, hey, I I have some level of influence here, uh, and it's 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 an invitation for me to step into that role in my life. Yeah, I, I love that you're using the word choice, and actually, choice is a very important part. Just the stance of choice totally changes our mindset. I was talking to, I have a podcast called Psychologist Off the Clock, and we had um, a researcher on named Benji Schoendorf, who does this cool thing called The Matrix. And he talked about choice in relationship to values that when you are choosing your values, even if it's something painful, when you are choosing pain, you know, you think about something like childbirth, you're choosing pain, right? And it's connected mm-hmm. to something meaningful. Right. It totally cha- It totally changes the way that you relate to it. I think about like the Wim Hof breathing, right? I started doing Wim Hof many years ago and I, I picked it up during the pandemic. Do whatever you can, drink your green smoothie. So with Wim Hof, his whole approach, the Iceman, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's like this. Of course. Di- okay, yeah. everyone's heard, okay, people on this, not everyone yeah. has heard of him. He's famous. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's famous, right. And they're actually doing some research on his stuff now at USC. Alyssa Apple is looking at some of his stuff on hermetic stressors. But so with Wim Hof breathing, you're choosing to hold your breath for long periods of time. You're choosing to dunk your body into ice cold water, right? You're choosing to stress your body in these ways. If you were doing those things, if someone did those things to you and it weren't your choice, it would be considered torture. But because you're choosing it, it's like a health practice, right? So just the way that you relate to something changes the way that you experience it. And oftentimes a lot of our suffering is about what we're doing with our internal experiences, with our teams that show up. Kirk Strassel calls them teams. Our thoughts, our emotions, our action tendencies, our urges, our memories, our sensations in our body. And when difficult stuff shows up inside of our body, what we often do is we choose to turn away from it. That's just the human condition that's in our biology. It's our evolutionary biology to do that. We choose to try and control it. We choose to turn away from it. We run from it. And when we do that, we're engaging in something called experiential avoidance, which is a term and act, experiential avoidance. And I call it the experiential avoidance roundabout in our book with Debbie Sorensen, because it it sends you in this roundabout. And we actually, I'm in California and they used to pop roundabouts down in California, all the, like it, like traffic congestion places. And when you're in a roundabout, you have, the only way to get out of the roundabout is to exit, right? But Californians get freaked out by things like roundabouts because it's like, ah, oh, what do I do? It's like traffic, new traffic. I have to be flexible here. 
the psychological flexibility is the willingness to move over a lane and do that hard thing to get yourself out of the roundabout of suffering. And when you're out of the roundabout of suffering, you can go on any road you want in town. But that's the choice point, right? So the choice point is recognizing when difficult stuff shows up under your skin, seeing what your values are, being willing to stay with the discomfort, but then orient yourself towards what you care about in the moment. Well, in psychedelic assisted therapy, you know, it's sort of a basic teaching is when sometimes there's, it's, it appears as imagery or whatever it is, some kind of ominous feeling or thing or being, it's usually like lean into it as opposed to pushing it away. And the resistance in pushing it away is where a lot of that real discomfort starts to happen. And it's almost like the unconscious uh, manifesting in these different you know, ways uh, in the journey and as like a monster, essentially. And you can run from it, but you can't hide. And it's, and it's sort of a, 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 like a bigger amplification or illumination of like this idea of uh, using that as like a lesson or a teacher and kind of leaning into that experience. Yeah, and I, and I would say none of this is new. I think that's mm-hmm. the most common response I get when I when I right, talk about right, these principles right. of Africa. Like, none of this is new. Well, yeah, none of it's new, of course. And you know, if you even look at Tibetan um, Tibetan Buddhism and uh, Lama Alam and her work with feeding your inner demons, right? She has this whole practice around imagining your inner demons and having a conversation with them. Why are you here? What do you want from me? And then imagining yourself feeding them. Like, what is that about? That's about right. acceptance and making space and seeing the two sides of the coin that often what shows up the most the most painful difficult thing that's showing up for you whether that's your addiction or whether that's your jealousy has something with it that links to what you care about that's why it's painful for you i haven't met a lot of people that get really upset when they lose a game of bowling right unless they're like a bowling champion <laughs> you know you get you get upset about the things that matter to you. So the demons that show up often are linked to uh, what's most important. And it it behooves us to be able to sit with them. I, I see that it's an indicator of like what's important to you, but I also see it as a little bit of a trap because, because it's important to you, uh, it's the thing that's the most sticky. So, I mean, what are ways when, you know, and that's like, if you avoid it, how it can come up as, ancillary pain you know like you have this oh now my back hurts and like some people would argue we've had some people on this show who talk about pain from a psychological perspective and not all pain but a lot of pain and it's another way of like your body trying to talk to you or your mind and your heart trying to like infuse like these messages to you so when something's coming up like there's something that you're avoiding it's real like triggering in that way and you're like okay this is clearly really important to me how do you like where's the line between working with it in a positive way that's beneficial to you versus like feeding the fire and becoming like more jealous or you know you're just sort of in you're getting more into the loop oh it's so great well i just will first say that interestingly act is used as a primary treatment for chronic pain and the united kingdom nice guidelines which are sort of like the highest standard of medical guidelines just came out recommending act for chronic pain, because pain is represented in our brains, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, in very similar brain areas, right? So the somatosensory mm-hmm. cortex, the arcuate nucleus get activated when you are experiencing pain. 
pain is different from suffering. And with ACT or what, what sort of what we're working on is how to experience pain without becoming entangled in it. I am experiencing pain, but I am not my pain. There's a, um, there's a meditation teacher, Annette Knopp, who I've studied with. She's in Costa Rica at the Blue Spirit, um, Blue Spirit Costa Rica. And she talks about sort of at the front of the heart are the waves, right? The waves of your emotion, the waves of your pain, the waves of your um, sort of sensations in your body. But at the back of the heart is sort of like diving down deep underneath those waves to a space that can hold it all. This sort of the, the you that is, that is not impacted, that is, that is not entangled in the pain. So we can do that through strategies like being able to notice our thoughts as thoughts and not seeing our thoughts as us, not necessarily believing our thoughts to be true, not necessarily fighting our thoughts, because often what happens when we're experiencing something painful is we get into those sticky thoughts. We start believing, oh, this will never end. There's sort of some common ones like this will never end. I can't handle this. Um, often they're future tripping about you know bad stuff that's going to happen in the future, or we're doing this negative rumination about the past, right? So we can begin to notice that that's just the that that's just what the mind does. My mind's doing its thing. I am not my mind, sitting at the back of the heart, right? So we can become better observers of our thoughts. We can also become better observers of our physical sensations in our body. And there's information in them, just like there's information, there's information in our anger, there's information in our physical pain. But it's it's not all. It's not all, right? So I can I can notice the information in my anger of like, okay, my anger is showing up because I, it's it's an urge to protect. But then I can also become completely engulfed by my anger where I'm just like furious and livid and burning stuff down, right? So it's there's a distinction there that um, we can start to train within ourselves, stepping more into the observer self. I think Ram Dass would call that like sitting in the seat of the soul and it's that witness um, mentality in which he spoke about a lot. There's a song uh, that we collaborated on where he talks about loving your dark thoughts as opposed to, you know, pushing them away. And it's a different, anytime you're sort of loving something in a sense, especially if it's part of your own beingness, it, you're already now like in this like meta role, you know, and it's, it's a beautiful energy because just like trying to love something, you look at it sort of like a scared or angry child, you know, at the end of the day, it's a waiting game, you know, and you're kind of holding something as a process is continuing to unfold. Mm -hmm. And these are all ways of just becoming kind of aware. And I would imagine just that act of like, this is sort of this unique human capability we have to just be able to separate for a second and say like, there's now almost two things going on in your own sense of being. There's the other, or there's the witness and there's the yourself, I guess. And that's such a bizarre thing that we can do this. Um, and we sort of take it for granted, but just that act, like that mechanical motion in your consciousness uh, is a powerful mechanism and tool. Absolutely. That's, you know, we develop this sense of self early on when we start, can, we can start to tell the difference between you versus me, then versus now, here versus there, right? That's the, that's the self. And selfing can get us into a lot of trouble, but can also yeah. be very helpful in being able to take perspective. And I think what you're also adding in there, and there's, this is sort of also in a really emerging in the field of psychology is the, 
and again, this is not new, is uh, self-compassion and in compassion. And the role of self-compassion and compassion in helping us be able to do that perspective taking from a space of love. So what's, what's sort of interesting about, if you think about like being in a fight with someone, what's happening in that moment when we are not being psychologically flexible, when I'm fighting with my partner, I'm stuck in me. I can't take his perspective. I'm so caught up in my thoughts. I'm not even hearing what he's saying because I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next, right? And then I'm completely dysregulated. My whole body is just like full. I, I am my emotion. I am my anger. And I'm acting from this really reactive place, right? So if I were to practice some of these psychological flexibility skills in that moment, including self-compassion, it would be like putting my hand on my heart, and just noticing, wow, I'm suffering right now. I'm, I'm hurting. And then being able to recognize him and, and do some perspective taking. He's hurting too. We're caught. We're like, we're like fish that were swimming down a stream and we both got hooked. And when you get hooked, you start moving in directions that you don't want to be going, right? I got hooked. I got hooked by my anger. I got hooked by my defensiveness, right? That's just the human condition. But then I can get, get present, get rooted, get in the here and now, take perspective, accept and allow the difficult stuff that's showing up under my skin, get clear on my values. How do I want to be as a partner? How do I want to be as a wife? Like if I had a video camera on me right now, or if I were writing about this 10 years from now, what would I want to have said or done? And then I act from that place. But it takes, I think that first part of loving what is, right? That's been said in many different ways by many different people, which is includes ourselves to have compassion for those moments of suffering and turn towards them with a kind heart, with a gentleness. Yeah. In some ways, I would imagine a lot of this has to do with slowing down. Like, cause a lot of things are just like, you got to let a fire burn out a bit. And that's just about like not trying to force things to move forward in the immediate moment. It's like, that's, you know, that's kind of medicine that would solve a lot of problems. It's, you know, it's like, take a break. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Slowing Give down. Give it some time. It's it's interesting though. I, I spent in my twenties. I spent time with Thich Nhat Hanh. My my parent. My dad was a was is a meditation teacher, a Buddhist teacher, and um, he, they followed Thich Nhat Hanh for many years. And I went to Plum Village actually with my with my now husband. And one of the things that struck me when I was there was the monks in their full brown robes, jogging, jogging. <laughs> <laughs> tennis shoes on and uh, Larry Ward who's a good friend of my parents I interviewed him on the show he's a um, incredible he's a lay minister ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh and he talked about how he Thich Nhat Hanh would would jog from time to time and what's interesting is that it's important to slow down but it's also okay to go fast if you've mastered slowing down if you can if you've mastered being present and you've mastered mindfulness. It's like it's like a musician. You start slow. You learn little bits, and you go through it slowly. And then sometimes you speed the, you speed up, and it's awesome to go fast. But you have to you have to be able to stay with it. Don't go fast before. Don't go fast too soon. And so I think that actually psychological flexibility is about that. We don't, you know, we live in a world that's speeding up. But how do we be conscious with the speed? And then how do we also practice the slowness from time to time, like the, the, through, I would say again, throughout our days, those sort of, those embodiment check-ins. Am I in my head right now or am I in my body? Okay, whoa, get back in my body. 
and then slow down, be present so that I can take that with me into the speed of life. Yeah, I mean, most people haven't mastered the mindfulness or mastered the the slowness like a monk. I mean, if anything, I think about the monks, they just figured out that like, oh, like we recognize that we're human beings, we're animals, like we need to run sometimes. Like we we don't want to just be totally still all the time. Like we have to have that balance of exercise. I mean, some of the most basic things are remembering all of the aspects of our beingness, which is not just our ability to have this witness consciousness, which is like way up here, like this maybe perhaps a unique human attribute. You go down the levels and like, we're animals. You know, we, we need sunlight. We need water. We need structure. We need love. We need exercise. We need to move this body. Um, those are really, you know, core, th- just our diet, like really core things that we often don't give the credence they perhaps deserve in the greater picture of our mental health and our spiritual and physical health. Yeah. We're always talking about we could do this technique or this mental technique. It's like, what are you eating? How <laughs> you know? are you getting out? Well, I love, I love the concept. I mean, yes, we are animals. We forget that we are nature. We often talk about nature as something separate from us, but I, um, I've been thinking more and more about ecosystems. And I think um, in terms of our interconnectedness and the ecosystem of the body, but then the ecosystem of our family. And an ecosystem is a system which is sustained because it's a complete circuit, right? Mm -hmm. And when you start to look at ecosystems, I taught fifth grade homeschool this year, so I got really good on ecosystems. (laughs) there's, um, there's, There's consumers, in the eco, well, so you start with the producers, the plants, right? The plants, they take the energy from the sun and they transform it from chemical energy into physical energy, right? And then there's the consumers that eat the plants and they take that energy, right? And then the most imp- other part, important part of the ecosystem is the decomposers that, that take the matter and decompose it and break it down and turn it back into the nutrients with, within which feeds back into the system, right? So humans are really good at consuming and we produce a whole lot of stuff, but we're not always the best at decomposing, whether that's environmental decomposing or decomposing our grief or decomposing yeah. our stress or decomposing through rest or decomposing through just being in the presence of another. And what we know now about human co-regulation, we're animals, but we're mammals. There's huge swaths of our brain that are dedicated to co-regulating, neural coupling, being able to be, um, be, being able to regulate our nervous system by being in the presence of another, which is part of our decomposition, right? So I would say we can look at that sort of like at the the small level, like what am I consuming in terms of what, you know, what am I taking in? What information am I taking in? Who am I around? What am I reading? What am I producing? What are the, you know, the, the actions that I'm doing in the world? Are they aligned with my values? And then how am I decomposing? Like how am I putting energy back into the roots to support the system? Well, you said something about decomposing, being around who you're surrounding yourself with, like the other, like other beings. Can you say more about that? Because I think there's something unique there to the human experience, especially like as we're coming out of pandemics, maybe we notice like solitary versus others and just that role it plays in this decomposing. Yeah, I think we need, I think we need both. Um, I studied someone named uh, Stefan Porges, who's the founder of something called polyvagal theory. And um, I interviewed him actually right at the start of COVID. And 
His theory has a lot to do with sort of the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the cranial nerve, the longest cranial nerve that goes from our brain all the way down to our heart, all the way down to our gut. And mammals, the the newer part of the poly the polyvagal system is has to do with regulating our nervous system through social engagement. And the ways in which we regulate our nervous system through social engagement is through facial expression, through tone of voice, through touch. And actually, he links a lot of the benefits to, of things like chanting, of breathing, of music and sound, the tonality of sound. Why is it so soothing to us? Is because it's activating that vagus nerve, polyvagal theory, right? So we co-regulate each other when we are presence in the presence of someone that feels safe and nurturing and loving and supportive, it calms our nervous system down. And when our nervous, when we feel safe, when our nervous system feels regulated, just like a kindergartner on the first day of school, when the kindergartner feels safe, they're more likely to go out and explore, explore the room. When we feel safe, we're more likely to go out and explore our world and be able to engage in more pro-social action as opposed to competitive drive, right? So when, when I think about decomposing, I think about the time that's just traditionally was spent in circle, was spent in song, was spent in creating food, was spent in just, you know, making, making thread, right? That we don't do a lot of that. We don't do it in the same way that, that, our, that humans really benefit from each other, of being in circle, being in support of one another, that's incredibly good for, for our bodies and our brains, and then transmits into how we act in the world. Do you, think, do you think there's a benefit or disadvantage of it being digital or virtual, that connection? Yeah, I asked Stefan Porges about that um, because it was actually right at the start of lockdown when we were just about to go into, you know, this <laughs> virtual world. Yeah. And and for me as a therapist, I, you know, I, I'm so used to having people come into my space and share a cup of tea and, you know, have a candle going and breathe, Right start of the session. Uh, how is this digital world impacting us? He, he said that um, it's, it's a good substitute, but it's not the same. And in particular, what he really pointed to and what he really points to is um, also just the very important part of human touch, the important part of um, tone of voice. So when we're doing a lot of uh, like texting or a lot of ma instant messaging, there isn't tone there, the tone of the voice. And, and what's interesting is that we put tone on it. So sometimes I'll have a client in my practice to be like, oh my gosh, you gotta, you gotta hear what my sister said. And they'll whip out their phone and then they'll read the whole thing with this total tone. <laughs> I'm like, I, yeah. you put that tone on that. That was not there. <laughs> it's just words, but you added the tone, right? So there's a way in which humans, th that we are interacting with each other, even just you and I, there's a neural coupling that happens. If I speed up, you're going to speed up. If I slow down, you're going to slow down because there's a lot of nonverbal communication that mammals have with one another that can get lost when we're in, digi in the digital world. It's not, it's not terrible, but we just have to be conscious of it. You know, even just the static boxes yeah. with we're in, that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. And you touched on also just this idea of like what we input in, obviously, is, you know, all this information swirling around us. I mean, that's a big aspect of it. Um, so when we think about um, changing times, and I would imagine, let's just say for sake of argument, which is probably a safe bet, we're going to have more changing times and more forms of collapse and stress moving forward. Um, 
what are some things, uh, or how can we sort of synthesize like what you're talking about in your new book about, you know, advice you could give if we're moving forward, like sort of like signposts to look out for kind of yeah. the major strokes? So we start with, the book is an eight-week program, and I've been kind of all over the place today, but it's organized. <laughs> It's an organized program. It has eight weeks. You start with week one. We're, we're meandering. We're That's meandering. That's what I do. I meander. Yeah, I, I hope yeah. you don't. Yeah, I, I enjoy meandering. And there's also a time and place for like, get your ducks in a row here. So the ducks in a row mm-hmm. are the first chapter is about self-compassion, self-care and intentional use of time. So we go through seven days and it's not really necessarily meant to be done like every single day. I hope you're flexible with it. I mean, goodness, if you're not psychologically flexible with your program, then that's a problem. So you start with self-compassion. And, and for me, it's about getting, we called it preparing the ground. I'm a, I'm a gardener and I really believe in the richness of soil, right? So the richness of the soil is, is self-care of, of, of getting into a place of feeling rooted, right? Right now and during t- times of transition, doing those simple practices of going back to what you know roots you, and for some people that may be music, for someone else that may be their exercise program, for someone else that may be calling a certain person that it's just so rooting for them, right? That co-regulates them into a good space. So you start with, with self-compassion, self-care, intentional use of time. And then we move through these, these other simple practices. We get present, get present, get in your body. Am I in my head or am I in my body? And we can do that by you know, sometimes I'll talk about this practice of one eye in and one eye out. So one eye in, what's happening in the world around me, one eye out, what's happening in the world outside of me, and one eye in, what's happening in the world inside of me, one eye in and mm-hmm. one eye out. And then noticing your thoughts. You are not your thoughts. Your brain is going to produce thoughts. Some of them are helpful. Some are not. In the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, which seeds do you want to water? Neuroplasticity, right? So you choose with your atten- attention. And you get to start to develop that observer self. So start with the ground, get present, notice your thoughts, become an observer, pay attention to your heart. Your heart has some things to say, and then take some regular committed action towards what you care about. And I actually, in my, on my, um, my website, I have these body, like act as a body-based practice, right? So um, if you go there, you can kind of get like a little bit of a synopsis, like a little infographic that goes through each of these. But uh, I think that people know at some level what they need or what they need to do during times of transition and changes. It's it's the hard part is the implementing it, you know? Yeah, I think we all know with a capital K, mm-hmm. period, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's just a matter of trusting that or having the doorways be opened up to say like, yeah, you can do that. You know, you can do what you know. Uh, it's just having a bit of encouragement. And sometimes that's what the witness is about, whether it's yourself or another. It's to to motivate you to, to trust your own uh, knowledge, your own beingness of saying that you, you really do know. And uh, even when things are falling apart or other things aren't working, it doesn't mean you always have that connection to that center. And it's learning to trust that. It's always been there and that it always will be there. And so it's a lot of these techniques seem like ways of reconnecting to that, uh, that tether of truth. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where can people connect uh, more deeply with this or you or your work? Well, I wear a lot of hats. So uh, I have a podcast, I call it Just Off the Clock, where I've interviewed some pretty cool folk. Um, and I, at drdianahill.com, I have a lot of events and offerings. Every Tuesday, I teach through Inside LA and Yoga Soup. Uh, I do the practice that I do, which is, well, I do a first, I do a short talk, and then I do some embodied movement, and then I do a meditation. Tuesday evenings, it's free. Uh, and then I also have a lot of offerings uh, through Inside LA. I'm offering workshops throughout the year on each of these practices, a deep dive. So if you go to Dr. Diana Hill um, under my events, and then I'll be in Costa Rica, April 2022, with um, the Longevity Center there at Blue Spirit. And I'll be um, bringing a yoga teacher and we'll be going through ACT in that way. So that's another place. If you want to meet me somewhere in person, uh, cool. you can find out more there at drdianahill.com. Trudy Goodman's been on the show, speaking of Insight LA. There you go. Yeah. And she's awesome. And uh, is Blue Spirit in Nosara or is that further south? Oh, it is in Narsara, the heart of Nosara. It's started by Stefan Reichschafen, who has become yeah. a friend of mine. He he started Omega and then he's like, I'm going to go and build this place that is phenomenal. I would just check it out in general. You don't have to come to my specific thing, but it's pretty phenomenal in terms of what they offer there. They have a whole longevity center they, they draw. Um, I was just there, Deva Pramal. I was like swimming in the ocean with Deva Pramal. It was pretty, pretty phenomenal. Well, I was just, my partner and I were just in Nosara um, in, I'm bad with time. I want to say April or something for an event. It was like my first gig post, or I guess it was still in COVID, but yeah. Um, so I was just there for the first time. It's great. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's healing on all levels. I mean, it, it, you can't even boil it. It's like, can't boil it down to what's the one thing about <laughs> being there. So, the yeah. ocean. <laughs> yeah, the ocean. Yeah, blue, <laughs> the blueness of it, but also just the slowness and being totally immersed in that much uh, nature and oxygen because there's just so many trees and so they do such a good job with conservation there. They've been working so hard. A country that doesn't have an army puts their money into good places. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for taking the time. It's nice to meet you and uh, nice to be able to ask some questions to, for my own sake. And I'm sure other people will enjoy it too. Thank you. It's an honor and delight to be with you. Cheers. Well, thank you, Diana, for coming on the show. And um, as you can hear, it's a, it's a deep theory, philosophy, and practice. I mean, you could check out her book if that's something you want to just learn a lot more about in one place it's the act daily journal get unstuck and live fully with acceptance and commitment therapy Uh, but i appreciate i always appreciate people coming on the show and being willing to just hash it out let me ask questions and hopefully learn a little bit or a thing or two so this song that you're hearing in the background is tabby la raza by lorraine weiss or featuring lorraine weiss sorry lorraine is someone who i met through a friend ivy ross and Ivy was kind enough to let Rod and I stay at her uh, guest house in Santa Fe a couple years ago. And I met Lorraine, who lives there. And she does all sorts of beautiful, like, in- insight work with people and just does deep work. She sort of uses the saxophone and music to help facilitate inner journeys. And we just clicked. And I was like, we should, we should record someday. And long story short, 
she she was able to go to a wedding in southern Utah a few hours away, I think near Bryce or Zion or something. And someone drove her out to the studio as a, a kindness. I'm sorry, I can't remember your name, but I remember you. Anyway, she came out and we recorded um, some soprano saxophone stuff for the Ramdas album. And we also did a podcast. So this is the second song that I sampled from my podcast that I used in this new Possible album. The other one was Bio, Akamalafe, and this one was Lorraine. And we had this beautiful conversation on the podcast, which I encourage you to go back and hear if you haven't heard it already. And I ended up using it in this, in this song. So the song comes out on the 23rd of June, 2021, which is a Wednesday, if all goes as planned. And check out the whole thing in nice high fidelity and you can order it on pre-order the vinyl if you want to hear it on vinyl at eastforest.org. The whole possible album ships in July. And I'm just excited to, uh, to feature Lorraine because I think she's just beautiful and she's just been doing a lot of her own work and it's great for people to kind of share their process. So thanks for listening, thanks for the reviews, thanks for subscribing, and thanks to all of our counselors over on the patreon.com slash eastforest, everyone who supports the podcast, I appreciate that, and the project itself. Um, you guys are going to need to keep, keep your hats of steel on as we continue doing our walk, and there's so much going on, but keep walking that walk, don't take any shit, but if you do, do it with grace. Me.